So when I say medtech startup life, what comes to mind? Maybe innovation, excitement, purpose and meaning. What about transformational business growth? Or maybe you think crippling stress and pressure and anxiety and financial concerns. The life of a medtech founder is probably filled with all of that and more. And today in this episode, we're taking you on the journey of a medtech founder through the lens of the medtech actuator, an accelerator for health ventures across Asia Pacific. I'm joined by Maria Palipas. And in this episode, we talk about trends in health tech and medtech over the past few years. We talk about raising capital what medtech founders face today, and also the process of taking an innovation from research to commercialization and beyond. Collaboration starts with the conversation team, Health Tech. Let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Birch, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is Maria Polipas. She's a seasoned program manager with innovation experience across biotech strategy consulting, partnership management, startup accelerators, investment funds, and innovation agencies. Maria currently oversees four programs at MedTech Actuator, including the flagship 12-month accelerator for health ventures across Asia Pacific. Hey, Maria, how are you going? Hi, Pete. Thank you for having me on the podcast today. Very excited. How good is it to have you on the podcast? Thanks for making the time. Um, but, you know, no stranger to talking health tech, obviously, as a THT Plus member and participated in the Spring Summit that we That's had a right. few months ago as well. Yeah. And, of course, we've got the the Autumn Summit coming up too, which you're moderating a session at. So we'll, we'll hear more about that in a tick. But for those that don't know about you, tell us a bit more about you and your background, please. Absolutely. I've had multiple roles in the startup ecosystem, started in the biotech management consulting when I've been working with a small and medium companies and startups. And then I joined an innovation agency slash uh, fund of funds uh, to oversee international activities of our startups and our portfolio funds and international partnerships for our portfolio companies. And um, it was the passion of startups that I guess kept me in the startup ecosystem because I just couldn't stop. <laughs> Since then, <laughs> I've worked at a couple of startup accelerators. One was uh, a corporate startup accelerator with multiple verticals and all sorts of startups from creative to space. And that I worked for a, a startup accelerator focused on export activities to Asia for technologies in AI, big data, and IoT. And then I worked at a startup as well as a chief of staff when I uh, learned how hard that journey is when it's just you and your co-founder in the room <laughs> doing everything 24-7. So it's funny. I find, I don't know if it's these days or it's always been, but that chief of staff title is basically the you're doing everything title. <laughs> it's that's just, right. Uh, like everyone. <laughs> it's quite an anyway, interesting yeah, role but... and it's quite new. And I guess a lot of startups are trying to figure out what it is exactly. It's, it sort of sits in between chief operations officer and mm. an extra co-founder 
with a limited equity stake of the company. <laughs> <laughs> At least that was my experience. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm currently with Metec Actuator. Couldn't be happier. Um, we see multiple of health ventures going through our programs at the very, very early stage, and it's quite an exciting journey. And so for clarity as well, for those not totally familiar with the concept of an accelerator, I'm pretty sure we've covered it a couple of times on the podcast in the past, but to set the scene as well, what what does an accelerator do generally? And then we can talk a bit more about MedTech Actuator. Absolutely. So first and foremost, we are the first investor for most of the teams that go through our program. We also provide lots of lots of structure and support in building out the commercialization pathway. So we see a lot of startups uh, and startup ideas being born in universities or in clinical setting. And clinicians would be first-time founders. They wouldn't know much about what to do with this idea, how to make it work, how to bring it to market. So this is where we come in with our understanding of different critical risk areas that need to be addressed in order to make it work and to, to bring it to market. So it's about building a regulatory strategy or figuring out the reinvestment model, which is going to work in a particular jurisdiction that the product or the service is addressing. And then how to figure out IP and how to raise capital and how much capital you would need to actually make this work. And a lot of those questions is something that founders, first-time founders are struggling with. So this is where we Mm. come in with a bit of capital boost and a helpful hand and a sounding board and a community of experts that can help bring this to market ideally at an accelerated pace. And meaning something that would usually take maybe five, seven years, you would be able to make it in maybe three, four. Yeah. It's funny, all those things you say, the reimbursement structure and how to structure capital and all the regulatory environment, they're all the very hard things that, uh, you know, you, you've got an innovative idea or you're a clinician that's come up with something, you're, you're a first-time founder, you're solving this problem, but then there's all these other kind of things that need to happen in order to bring that to a commercial reality. And so so they're the type of things that then MedTech Actuator do. Tell us a bit more about MedTech Actuator and who that serves. Right. So we have a number of programs. We have our flagship 12-month accelerator, which is sort of like a mini commercialization MBA for first-time founders or for early-stage founders, where we take them through different areas that need to be addressed, including regulation strategy, IP strategy, capital raising strategy, product development strategy. And then that all turns into a commercialization plan. And at the end of that acceleration program, they are de-risked to the stage or to the level that make them interesting to external investors. So after they finish the program, they're able to raise external capital for the first time. Um, We have another program for idea stage um, teams that just looking to learn just a bit more about commercialization journey in med tech and health tech specifically. And uh, we also have a couple of programs for researchers, early stage and senior career researchers. Those programs, they come with scholarships for researchers to help them a little bit on their pathway to learn more about commercialization and about commercializing their research idea and take out of university. So we provide a bit of support and guidance and lots and lots of coaching and education for those researchers that are interested in in maybe spinning that idea out of university or a hospital or other clinical setting. Mm. It's interesting you put you made that point about 
de-risking an organization and making it more attractive for, I guess, investment and even potentially for, you know, other partnerships as well. It's interesting too, because a founder might come and think, oh, you know, maybe they know the regulatory landscape really well, or they might know the commercialization side, but it almost provides a, not a tick of approval, but it provides assurance or it provides confidence to future partners to know that, you know, an organization's come through a program like the MedTech Actuated and that it gives you some advocates following the completion of the journey as well about what you're doing. Is that about right? That's right. But I guess even at the earlier stage, at the first approach to thinking about commercializing your idea starts where you start thinking about the team, the resources you need, how you keep that research idea within the company to make it investable. So a lot of the research innovation is coming out of universities and then that IP would sit with the university or a hospital. So then a lot Mm. of the clinicians or researchers, when they've conducted that research, they start thinking about commercializing this. And then the idea of spinning it out of a uni or a hospital, taking it out of the research lab into the startup world is a complicated journey. And then the first question that they need to ask themselves is, who is going to do it? What team is going to be behind it? And how long they can keep doing this for? Because medtech is a complicated journey and sometimes it takes years and years before you can secure your first revenue, right? Before you start selling that product to hospitals or clinicians or your, or your patients or users. So who holds the IP is the first question. Uh, more often than that, it's the university and the hospital. And so the founders would need to figure out how to make it interesting to a potential investor if you turn it into a startup. And then another a big consideration is that startup company, the first startup company that they set up, how do they do it? Who's going to hold equity in this company? Is it going to be the university that's going to hold 60% of the company, which will make it probably uninteresting to lots of the investors, the majority of them. So it's questions like this that a lot of the researchers, I think, find really puzzling and something that they're struggling with. And so a lot of them, as I see examples of that, they think that they need to take this as far as possible to actually prove the viability of their research idea. So sometimes they would take it as far as the clinical trials, and then they would start thinking about commercializing it. And at that point, the university will have invested so much in that research that it's unlikely that you would be willing to give it away to a startup company. So a lot of the considerations that are quite complicated and quite puzzling for first-time founders out of clinical setting. And then, of course, just the idea that you start being a researcher and you start becoming CEO is another huge step and a huge risk. And especially for senior career researchers, we found that it's those that are on a tenure track, just taking that step out of a research lab into the startup world full of risks is sometimes just impossible. So we try to help them a little bit, but ultimately it's personal decision, right? Yeah. No, it's so true about, you know, getting that foundation right on the house. It's hard to to replace the foundation when you, you've built a bunch of stuff on top of it, getting those first questions right that, you, you know, in terms of how it's structured and that makes a lot of sense. 
I want to get into a bit more about, you know, the struggles that a founder face probably a bit later in this conversation, but just back to as well, you know, this landscape, med tech and health tech, you mentioned it's complicated and you're not wrong, um, but it's obviously changed a lot in the past couple of years as well. What are some of the biggest trends or things that you've seen within med tech and health tech, particularly over the last couple of years? Sure. Um, so just looking at the applications that we're getting into our programs, I would say that the last two years have been a bit slow for traditional medical devices, especially those that need to be tried in a clinical setting because a lot of the founders weren't able to get into a lab or a hospital setting to try their ideas. So we've seen a rise of health tech solutions and we've seen a rise of software that is being registered as a medical device. So it's quite rare these days that a medical device would just be a, a piece of hardware. It's usually either a combination or it's just a piece of software, which I think a lot of the founders find quite confusing because they think surely it's just a piece of software and it's just maybe an AI algorithm. How could that possibly be a medical device? And then mm. they found out that it will take them five years to get regulatory approvals just because the piece of software that they came up with is clinically actionable and it gives insights to clinicians and how to act a certain way, how to treat patients. So that makes it a medical device instantaneously. And so it creates a lot of additional barriers, I guess, for founders that initially thought that this is just a piece of software maybe. So I guess the last two years, they've redefined a medtech a little bit and expanded our perception of medtech. And then these days it's about software. Can we use it to treat patients? So a lot of the companies that go through our programs, they have to make this choice between regulated, unregulated very early on. So it's a choice between turn it into a consumer-oriented product that would just provide guidance and information and maybe direct them to clinicians at certain stage rather than something that would treat or prevent because regulations they just come with the cost and the time and so much energy so a lot of the founders are making this choice very early on and i guess the covid really impacted that wellness market especially across asia pacific where consumers are being more tech savvy these days and they feel much more ownership about decisions in their lives that will impact their health and their way of living um, so a lot of the users are coming up with solutions that is something that they need as opposed to something that exists on the market. And especially patients with diabetes is a good example. They like to combine the solutions that exist on the market with some open source code that they use to build something completely customized that helps them manage their condition better. So those kind of solutions, they are unapproved, unregulated, but it's the user that is now calling shots and making decisions. So we see a lot of that, especially with solutions that use some actionable data for diagnosis. So not so much maybe in Australia, but across Asia Pacific, there are some countries where government mandated health data and that caused a huge rise of solutions that use that health data. So for example, we see smart glasses for paramedics with facial recognition and health data that becomes available to paramedics once they put their glasses on and point them at the patient that is lying there unconscious, for example. So it is only possible because at some point government mandated that health data and started licensing it to, to startups that are developing solutions that could leverage that data. So 
tech like this is quite exciting and certainly a lot of solutions out there that turn basic smartphone cameras into mini labs, at-home labs to assess wounds or maybe even tests for a UTI based on the algorithms that the startup comes up with. So it's something quite exciting to watch. And some of the trends that we've been seeing, they are about leveraging that data. They are about automatization, especially in, in less urbanized regions across Asia Pacific. So we see companies that come up with solutions that ensure prevention through once again, facial recognition with specific metrics for early detection of some conditions, plus that uneven distribution of health services across some regions, it creates opportunity for some of the Australian-based companies to connect service providers and clinicians and specialists based in Australia with some remote regions. And we see some companies doing that as well. So all of this is quite exciting to watch. <laughs> Mm, so much cool stuff. And there's the flashy stuff and the exciting things of facial recognition and other bits and pieces to which it's important to have the excitement around it. Just to that last point that you made around, you know, improving accessibility and how to leverage some of the things we're doing here and potentially then expand that into other parts of the world too. So it's such a cool space to be in. And I, and I guess with all of that interest and excitement, then money is needed to make these things happen. And it's probably become, you know, a bit more of an investable space and a, and a place that's generating some interest when it comes to capital. How are you finding it, that journey for raising funds when it comes to med tech and health tech for these founders? Is it getting easier to acquire capital now? So over the last two years, we've seen a lot of new investors being born in the space. And a lot of the traditional investors are now looking at medtech and health tech. In terms of what we see with our companies and companies that went through our programs and our portfolio, it's still quite uneasy to raise capital from medtech investors at early stages. Some of the companies in our portfolio had to work through the list of 500 investors before they were able to close their Series A. And most of those investors were outside of Australia. Although, yeah, we see an increase in the number of family offices in Singapore, for example, which have doubled over the last two years. And now they have, they say, 400 of them versus 40 in Australia. Plus, it's a bit easier to raise early stage capital in countries like Singapore with a lot of government incentives and government grants. But there's still a gap between those early stages and Series A. And this is where a medtech actuator comes in. So we are quite often the first investor for early stage teams and startups. So it's getting a bit easier, but a lot of the teams are struggling with getting investor with medtech expertise and credibility on board. So they would get a lot of soft commitments from business angel groups or, or other agnostic investors, but all of them would then ask for a lead investor, a cornerstone investor to have expertise in medtech. And then the founder would be waiting for months until they're able to secure that last piece of a puzzle, that medtech investor with credibility in the space that other investors would be ready to trust. So it's quite a journey. It's getting easier. But if a founder is trying to raise capital at the early stage, I would certainly encourage them to look not only at Australia, but at Asia Pacific and Israel and the US and uh, mm. 
countries like Japan and South Korea that are ramping up their investment activities as well. As you know, statistically, most of the deals in Asia-Pacific still happen in China, but it's getting easier to raise capital in, in Singapore. And there are a few new investors in Australia as well, and a few of the impact-focused investors in Australia as well, which is also quite an interesting space. And a lot of medtech products would be interesting to those funds. Mm. Such great insights there and something that no doubt many founders would be contemplating on. And it's a lot of pressure for a medtech or a health tech founder. There's a lot going on. And, you know, on the show, we've talked a lot about the cognitive load and the the mental health and the burnout of clinicians when it comes to healthcare, particularly the last couple of years. But from a founder's perspective as well, no doubt there's all of this pressure, mental health would be high on the radar in terms of things to keep on top of as well, do you think? Absolutely. And it's actually the aspect of the medtech space that I still find quite puzzling is why would they even do it in the first place? (laughs) (laughs) Because we see a lot of... So whenever a startup applies to one of our programs, I try to sit down with them and tell them, that it's going to take years before they're able to bring this product to market and just want to make sure they fully understand that it's going to be a burden probably on them and also on their families and they will have to make it work somehow until they secure proper revenue. So they will have to rely on themselves. They will have to rely on being able to raise capital at a given moment in time that would help them still keep the story going. Especially in the last two years, we've seen a lot of founders struggling with carrying responsibilities on top of everything else, being stuck at home with their kids, everything's closed. And those that went through our accelerator program last year, um, they absolutely faced that. The dynamics of constantly juggling between different responsibilities and that uncertainty that a lot of the early stage founders have around the next steps. I think it was exacerbated by the general uncertainties of what the world was going through. And so this is where I'd say support network comes in. So accelerator programs are great in creating that nurturing atmosphere, which we could probably do more, but we pay a lot of attention to mental health of our founders and for the simple reason that you stay with them for years with a lot of them you stay with them for years and a lot of them I guess at the very early days they don't fully realize how much effort and time and money it's going to take before they're able to bring this to market and so they definitely need this support so each year, as a tech actuator, we support one particular charity. And this year, we're supporting mental health uh, of founders. And we're doing a 10-kilometer run at the end of a year as a team. Wish us nice. good luck. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's... <laughs> We're still thinking there's still time to train. Certainly, I, I do. <laughs> um, it'll, it'll happen before you know it. It'll come around. It'll be the end of the year. Better get on it. Yeah. So, so especially, I'd say, women founders are, are struggling with a lot because they're the ones that are taking the full load of responsibilities in their families. So this year, we came up with a few initiatives to support female founders in medtech space specifically and hoping that we could provide a bit more necessary guidance and coaching and support and a bit of a confidence boost, I guess, as well, 
because a lot of the female founders are struggling to to take that first step and then to raise capital as well, which, you know, statistically is a, a very unfavorable environment that they operate in. So we could certainly do more, all of us, I'm sure, but we're trying. And I think that Accelerator Program is a great opportunity to create those connections that you would be able to rely on once it's starting to get more difficult. Yeah. And from a founder's perspective as well, particularly for female founders, if they're caring for a family, that's, you know, an added pressure there. But even from the team's perspective as well, you know, founders that get involved, particularly in healthcare, typically they're a caring person. And and if they've brought in a team in the very early stage, they feel this kind of, you know, there's that additional responsibility as well of like, you know, oh, these people have probably given up something to participate in this. And so if you're doing it all alone, it can feel like a remarkably isolating. Um, Absolutely. And I think that's the number one reason why teams fell apart within the first year is just getting more and more complicated every day it feels. And we see a higher success rate with teams that start as a team of four, five, six. And I think the record that we have is 11. Mm. Um, versus so 11 co-founders is probably a record Um, someone who starts alone it's something that we (laughs) you know recommend reconsidering and having some sort of support is absolutely crucial because like I said it will probably take years so just wanted yeah to give a big shout out to all the bio design teams that are going through our program because they usually have a team of four or five, sometimes six members. And we found that that's the most rigid construction and the setup that you could have. Because as long as you all bring unique skills and understanding and also different personalities, you can probably make it work. Does it make it complicated? Because there's a lot of people who would think, oh, I work best by myself or like I don't want to dilute equity. The more people that we get involved, the more complicated it is. But it sounds like don't let that deter you in terms of building the right team and building that support network around you and bring people in early. I would say yes, especially the argument about diluting. It's a good question, but it doesn't always work that way. So as long as people are bringing in unique expertise and skills, but Mm. also the support network, I would say go for it. But also keep your equity for as long as possible if you can do it alone. It's just that I don't see a lot of examples in medtech space where the founder is actually able to do it all alone. Yeah, I would recommend finding at least your other partner. So in medtech actuator, we often refer to Jim and Spock, so two characters with two different personalities. And so this is what the founding team of the Metech Actuator is actually like. Uh, And I wish we had a female duo that I could refer to, but at this point it's just Jim and Spock, which is, yeah, they're quite distinctively different. So maybe someone like this is a good example of just two different personalities, two different types of skills coming together and making it work. Yeah, good on you for bringing in a Star Trek reference. That's very um, uh, relatable, yeah, very on brand, a very on brand for MedTech Actuator. I feel like so that's that's nice. Hey, look, uh, you'll be moderating a panel session at the Talking Health Tech Autumn Summit on the twelfth of May, which is really cool. Looking forward to that one, and that that one's very aligned with the conversation that we've had today around breaking out of research into commercialization in this space. Give us some spoilers, or, or at least what you're thinking might be some of the talking points that come out of this session at the Autumn Summit? 
Sure. Um, so, like I mentioned, we see a lot of researchers coming out of unispace or hospital space and taking it further, turning it into a, an investable idea. And so, just based on our own observations, I think the things that researchers are struggling, they usually fall into two baskets. One would be the legal setup and practicalities around taking it out of uni or a hospital and turn it into a startup that would be interesting to external investors rather than going down the grant pathway or philanthropic organization support. So to make it work as a startup, you need to have a few ducks in a row that would de-risk that potential investment for, for investors. And another thing that a lot of researchers are struggling with is growing capabilities as a founder, especially within the first couple of years. We see some research groups that would come up with a couple of senior career researchers and supervisors, and then a couple of PhD students. And then the burden of becoming a CEO would fall on that PhD student just because they have a bit more free time on their hands. And so turning from a PhD student into a CEO and suddenly having those responsibilities of not only managing the company, but also managing your co-founders that yesterday were your scientific supervisors, it's quite a challenge. And so they would need to ramp up their leadership skills quite significantly over a short period of time, but also learn so much and learn a different way of thinking about this research idea, not treating it as something that they could just keep within a lab space and experiment some more, but also going to the outside world and talking to as many people as possible to potential users, to potential investors, start building those networks and those connections. And it's quite a challenging space, but we see some great examples and some great universities that are actually supporting that process for their PhD students or for their career researchers. I'm very much looking forward to that panel because I, I think it's something that needs to be discussed and uh, there's certainly a long way to go for a lot of the universities, institutes and hospitals in terms of helping their employees becoming and taking their research to market and turning it into an investable product and turning their employees into investable teams. So I quite like that space. I find it very exciting and I very much look forward to the conversation. Mm. So much to talk about. So people can uh, make sure they've got their ticket to that on the Talking Health Tech website to learn more. Hey, look, lastly, Maria, MedTech Actuator, you've got a busy rest of the year plan. Tell us about some of the things you'll be working on and what will be keeping you busy. I'll try not to turn it into a sales pitch. <laughs> um, we, <laughs> we have a couple of announcements brewing and they, they will speak to a lot of the things that we talked about today. So... Certainly, we have a big announcement that will answer your question about is it getting easier to raise capital in medtech space? And we will also have a couple of good news and success stories uh, in our portfolio that will be announced quite soon. We're also, at the moment, accepting the new accelerator program and the new 10 or 12 startups that will become, I hope, future stars of medtech space in Australia. Uh, and this year, we're paying particular attention 
attention to support of female founders in medtech. So we're putting together a few public events for female founders in medtech space, and we'll try to help them learn more about commercialization journey, but also about raising capital in the space and about building those valuable connections and learning from the best experience in the industry. Mm, so good. Excellent. Well, we'll put the details for MedTech Actuator in the show notes of this episode for people to check out in their own time, come along to some of those events and keep an eye out for some of those announcements as they come out. Maria, I'm really looking forward to speaking more at the Autumn Summit, but appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Pete. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to the show. Check out TalkingHealthTech.com to connect with other people in our community and to learn more about the Australian health tech industry. Also, make sure you hit subscribe on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode and share this episode with a few people who need to hear it. Now go make it happen.